Well, good morning. My name is Michael Brantner. I'm a member here at Genesis Community Church, and it's a joy to be with you this morning as we work through our next section of the Sermon on the Mount that Hans has been taking us through over the last couple of months. It has, for me, been um, a joy, but also been um, a difficult time sometimes of conviction as we read and study the words of Christ as he spoke to his disciples with the crowd surrounding and listening in on the mountain, like Nick said. So if you have your Bibles and you want to uh, follow along with us, uh, the words should be on the screen, but go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, and we're going to look at chapter, uh, verse 43 through 47 this morning. So our text this morning contains, like most of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, some very familiar words, words that most of us parents here today have probably taught our, our kids at some point, even if we haven't lived up to the teaching. These words are easy to understand, but much more difficult to live up to. I might even argue that these words are impossible to live up to, at least in our own strength. And here are those words. The three words that I use this morning to summarize this passage from Jesus are, love your enemies. There is more to this text, to be sure, and we will get there, but the gist of what Jesus says in this, pas in this passage, in this portion of our text this morning is just that. Those three simple but very difficult words to live up to, love your enemies. So if you're there in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, let's read that together. <clears throat> Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Let's pray together. Christ Jesus, thank you for your word. You've promised us that it will never fade and it will only continue to guide and heal and protect us if we would simply believe and obey. Help us in this endeavor this morning. Help us to see our place in this text and our shortcomings as you bring them to our attention. God, we ask that you would both pierce our hearts with conviction and massage them back to you and your will for us as it relates to your higher standard of living. We acknowledge that our ways are lesser than your, our ways and our our ways are what you first begin with in this text when you say, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Your ways are life-altering. They're not easy and they're not safe, but they are so good. You've provided for us the perfect example of how we should live, not only commanding us, but showing us through a life lived how we should then live. Thank you for your active obedience on our behalf. Thank you for your passive obedience on the cross, and thank you for your good graces even this morning as we open up your word and attempt to understand it and be changed by it. And it's only in your name that we can pray. Amen. I have thoroughly enjoyed and been helped by the way Hans has taken us through the Sermon on the Mount verse by verse. A few weeks ago, we came to verse 21, and in this verse, Jesus begins a method of teaching uh, in this short section of the Sermon on the Mount where he uses this phrase, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. He's done this five times since verse 21, and today we're gonna get to see the sixth time that he does that. But in this particular case, 
One purpose of his method is to lay forth an idea or a truth that we are living by and then to have Jesus' words contradict that truth or so-called truth and push us towards a right way of believing and living. So in keeping with the five, these five occurrences thus far that Hans has, has taught us through, um, we're going to continue with the outline that he's provided us, which is law, heart, and then application. So we begin today in verse 43 with the law, and this is going to be the so-called truth that Jesus lays down first, and this is a truth that the first century Jew would have been familiar with and probably would have been living up to, and by the way, thinking that they were right with God because of their obedience to this law. In the second part, we have the heart in verses 44 and 45. This is going to be the opposing truth that Jesus teaches them, the truth uh, that is actually life-giving truth from Jesus' lips. And um, this is the portion, portion of the passage where we're going to get to see the heart of Jesus um, and theoretically what we should, as a disciple of Jesus, most look forward to, to get to know the heart of God. And as we finish up, our applica- application this morning will be verses 46 and 47, but we're also going to just keep tagging on to verse 44 and 45 because that's where the heart of Jesus is. But in 46 and 47, how do we... Uh, accomplishes? How do we uh, apply what Jesus has said in this passage? So first, the law. What is the law that Jesus begins with? And I should put law in quotes um, because he states in verse 43, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Where does this law come from? It would be correct to say that this law comes from the Old Testament, but not entirely. In Leviticus 19.18, Moses writes, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In this Old Testament text, you can see where the command to love your neighbor comes from, but how about the hating your enemy part? This part of the teaching seems to have been an assumption based on a few things from the Old Testament history of Israel. First, there's definitely a misunderstanding of who the neighbor is, a right and biblical and New Testament understanding of neighbor um, negates any sort of belief that one could hate their enemy because the word neighbor, the term used there, would have included the enemy with a right understanding as well as the friend and the family. So the assumption that they were to hate their enemy seems to have come from the what we call the judicial sense of God's commands to the Old Testament people of Israel. Um, where they were to conquer the lands given them by God. So in this sense, there could have been an argument that they were to hate their enemy. But still further, we have examples in the Old Testament of certain enemies of Israel where uh, those people were shown love. Rahab would have been one such example. So what seems to be going on here is that the Jewish people of Jesus' day, who were living according to the principle of love my neighbor but hate my enemy, thought that they were actually fulfilling God's commands from way back in the history of Israel when God told them to not intermingle with those they were to conquer and destroy. Nations like the Moabites and the Canaanites and the Amalekites, etc., etc. Fast forward to the first century, and we have this law carried down through the generations and applied on an individual level and not contained within a national level as it should have been. And so as a result, On the individual level, we have possibly first century Jews loving only fellow Jews, only those who are like them, in turn hating and excluding 
everyone and anyone of a different descent. Examples of this are easy to find in the New Testament as well, even among the apostles at some points in their career. It's a difficult movement for them to make. It's how they were raised. It's all they knew. And here comes Jesus onto the scene, totally destroying this thought process like he does so often. So love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Was this the command from God found in the generations previously? No. The command was to love your neighbor as yourself. Assuming the opposite to be true, the rule to hate your enemy just seemed to make sense. And so was the, you have heard that it was said from Jesus' lips. But he's here now, and he's here to straighten out this thought process and to correct their misunderstanding and to rock their worldview and ours as well. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Isn't this the way that we function today? And here's the really disturbing thing. This is often seen as an honorable way to live. Think about it. How many movies and TV shows are dedicated to hating the enemy, dedicated to revenge? And I'm a fan more than anybody. When I think back of my attitude as I watch Jason Bourne or Taken or my all-time favorite, Braveheart, my attitude falls right in line with the main character. I've got to make them pay for what they've done to me. And think about real life. How often are we so hoping and wishing that those who have wronged us would get their just penalty? For that person who cuts us off in traffic, for the person who spreads a false rumor, for the person who posts something of the opposing political view on Facebook, and for the person who just irritates us to the core. So no matter how petty or how serious of a relationship wrecker they may be, we want them to pay. I want that person to pay. So we have here the, the law laid out by Jesus to begin with, which the majority of society agrees with. We've seen that there is an understanding as far as our society is concerned and theirs as well, and that this abiding principle is just acceptable, and it's sometimes even honored, like we see in the movies and the TV shows. So here, to love your neighbors and hate your enemy is simply a way of life. It isn't necessarily seen as a bad thing. All of us love our neighbors, those who are good to us, and all of us hate our enemies, those who are bad to us. But this isn't the way it should be for the Christian. For those who claim Christ as their Savior, there must be a different standard of living, and this standard of living will be in direct opposition to the way of the world. Jesus didn't call us to an easy life of no controversy. Jesus called us to a life of glory, a, a life of glory not for ourselves, but for God. This is a high calling and one that should be taken with great care. So what is this calling? What is, the dif what is different for the disciples of Jesus? If the world follows the language of loving the neighbor and hating the enemy, what language is the follower of Christ to follow? Well, Jesus says it here in verse 44, and we get to the heart here. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why would this have been so shocking for those in attendance listening to Jesus teach? And if not shocking for us to hear, why is it so difficult for us to live up to this? As I said before, and as just a, a basic understanding of, of the commands of Jesus throughout all of Scripture, I think that it's probably 
if not most of the time, or all the time, most of the time, impossible for us to obey fully these commands, at least in our own strength, which is why, by the way, we need someone who is fully worthy to fully obey the full law of God on our behalf. So as I ask myself the question, as I'm sitting and preparing for this sermon and, and this text, and I ask myself, why is it so difficult for me to obey this, to, for me to love my enemy? I'm there in my dining room at the table, and I'm studying, I'm, I'm uh, preparing this sermon, and I look up as I ask myself this question, I look to my right, and there's a hutch there in front of the window with some books on it that Brandy's used for decoration, and one of those books is Chuck Colson's Kingdoms in Conflict. And I thought to myself, that's exactly why Jesus or why this teaching from Jesus is so hard for us to live up to, even to believe in to some extent. There are kingdoms in conflict. There are two kingdoms, two worlds colliding, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this earth, the kingdom of this earth and the principles and beliefs that this earth has taught us and the kingdom of God and those principles that are given to us in his word. The fact that it's sometimes hard for us to uh, hear opposing philosophies or truths from the lips of Jesus is because we are so accustomed and we're so used to and we're so comfortable with the principles of the kingdom of this earth. Principles like love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus calls us to the principles of his kingdom. Principles like he said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I want to spend some time now teasing out what the imperative from Jesus is actually. What is it to love our enemies? What is it to pray for those who persecute us? Jesus said that we should love our enemies. Actually, a better understanding of this might be that those who follow Christ are the ones loving their enemies. They do love their enemies. So the first clause in verse 45 gives a hint to this. When Jesus states that loving your enemies will result in you becoming a son of your heavenly father, since we know that becoming a son or daughter of God isn't earned by our obedient behavior, behavior like loving our enemy, the only conclusion here that makes any theological sense is that verse 44 describes a, uh, the characteristic of a child of God, not a way to earn that status as a child Or we could state it a different way. A son or daughter of the Heavenly Father will love their enemy. Simple as that. Mainly because this is what God does. He loves his enemies. If we are identified as children of our Heavenly Father, then we will act like our Heavenly Father for the most part. We know that this won't be fully, uh, to the fullest extent, we won't perfectly fulfill everything that he has said in our lives. But praise be to God that there is grace in this. We have one, and praise be to God that we have one who did fully fulfill the commands of God. But this fact doesn't get us off the hook to obey. It just frees us up to love our enemies more and to love our enemies better. In last week's Turn the Other Cheek passage, Hans taught us on the subject of retaliation and Um, how Jesus' truth regarding how we should react to those that deal evil our way. The teaching of Jesus here pushed us in a direction opposite of the world, that earthly kingdom aspect that we mentioned earlier. 
In that text last week, we saw how Christ followers are to respond in love to those who actively do something evil to them, whether it be physical harm or financial harm or any other harm. The response that we should have in these circumstances, as hard as it may be, is to not hold tight to our rights to demand justice for the wrongdoer. In our passage this morning, we have exactly the same principle, just in a positive form. Martin Lloyd-Jones says of this text, there, the previous text, the turn the other cheek passage, there the position was that of a Christian subjected to insults by others. They come and strike him and inflict other kinds of injury on him, and Jesus says, don't hit back. That's the negative. Here, however, Jesus leaves that and goes on to the positive aspect, which is the ultimate attitude and activity of the Christian. We are not to retaliate but we are actively to love these people as well, even those who are enemies to us. So when Jesus quotes Leviticus 19 at the beginning of this passage, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, we can finally here see the fulfillment of this in the New Testament. It seems to come down to this question, who is my neighbor? Jesus is on a mission here uh, to teach us that our neighbor must of necessity include even our enemy. If we are loving our neighbor, we are loving our enemy. I want to mention one more thing under the heading of loving our enemies that might help us in our endeavor to do much better at this command from Jesus. Here's the thought. Our treatment of others must never depend on what the other person is and their treatment of us. Our treatment of our enemy must be entirely controlled and governed by our view of them and their condition. This is so critical. I feel like so often my desire is that the person changes to my standards and then I will treat them the way I know I should, the way Jesus has told me to. As long as they continue to act the way that they do, they don't deserve my good graces and my love. But notice the passage here, and this struck me so, so hard. There's no discussion by Jesus here for the person classified as the enemy. All the instruction and all the teaching is for the person who has been wronged, theoretically the innocent one. He is the one who must change in his attitude and behavior, not the wrongdoer. That wrongdoer will, needless to say, get their penalty, but that's not something we should be concerned with. We are to concern ourselves with treating them not the way they deserve to be treated, but the way Jesus has told us to treat them, with Christian love. To be sure, this is the way God treats us, isn't it? I want to keep, a, keep in mind that as we go through this passage and we read about this command and think about the fulfillment of that, it is him and him alone who has fulfilled this for us. And he has done this with the worst of enemies in a perpetual state of war against him. He treats us, the enemy, not according to anything that is in us, but in spite of us. And this is the way we should be treating our enemy, with Christian love in spite of what they deserve. Listen as I read a portion of Luke 23 from the passion of our Lord on the cross. In this passage, the beauty of Jesus' love for his enemies shines through, but we also get a glimpse at uh, the second part of the command to pray for those who persecute you. So in Luke 23, listen as I read. 
Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, why, what crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, and one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children, for the time will come when they will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Jesus says that we should love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Piper, dealing with this passage, says this, Jesus seems to have prayed for his tormentors actually while the iron spikes were being driven through his hands and feet. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies, what pain, what pride, what prejudice, or laziness could justify the silencing of our prayers for our enemies? In this one scene, we have the Savior fulfilling these two commands in one fell swoop. He's loving his enemies by going to the cross in an ultimate fulfillment of God's agape love and at the same time praying for those very ones persecuting him. What a picture and proof of the perfection of the obedience of Jesus in our salvation and our sanctification. When we read this amazing love and prayer from Jesus in the midst of his crucifixion, What excuse do we have to not offer up love and prayers for our enemies? One might argue at this point that Jesus loving his enemies is on a whole different level than the way that we might do it. He's loving them on a spiritual level, and he deals with eternal matters and salvation, and that's just different than the way we should love others. It's something otherworldly in our minds. God's love for his enemies isn't necessarily active in everyday life, is it? I get that argument, but in Matthew 5, Jesus doesn't just stop after the command for us to love our enemies and pray for our persecutors. He gives an example of how this love for the enemy plays out in everyday life on God's part. And he does this to show us in everyday life how we are to love our enemies. The passage reads in verse 45, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God doesn't just love in a saving grace kind of way, as incredibly amazing as that is. He loves those who hate him in a common grace kind of way. He sends gifts 
uh, to the earth on those who love him and those who reject him and wage war against him. So now we have no way out of this command. Love your enemies because God loves his enemies. So we worked through um, the law of the kingdom of this earth, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. We read how Jesus takes this statement and flips it on its head and says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. From this statement, we realize that this is the real heart of God and his desire for his children as well, that they would do the same and love their enemies. We saw how Jesus perfectly and fully loved his enemies, both in eternity past and on the cross, even fulfilling the second part of the command on the cross, and he prayed for those who were actively killing him at that moment. Well, now I want to ask the simple question for our application, how do I do this? How do I love my enemies? So the last two verses of Matthew 5 um, in this section read, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. So our passage this morning ends with these four questions, all of which can easily be answered if we just look at it. Question one, what reward do you have if you love those who love you? None. Why? Because everybody loves those who love them. There's nothing commendable about that. What more are you doing than those who greet only those who are like them? None. Again, why? Because there's nothing commendable about that. Everybody greets, everybody is friendly with those who are like them and like-minded. Jesus' point here is that his followers are about something more and about something greater. His followers aren't restricted to treating others good only when they are like-minded and only of the same category and only when they are nice to them. It's not the way it works for his followers. His followers don't just love those who love them. That's too easy and it has no outstanding quality. That's just the natural way to live. We are to live a life that's been supernaturally given to us and as a result, the rules of our lives change. We are only able to love, especially our enemies, because God has loved us first. So if we are to love our enemies, I want to spend a minute to discuss the link between God's love for us and our love for others so that we can set our hearts on this right path to better love our enemies. So another way to ask that question is, what is it practically that converts the love that Christ has for us into a love for others, especially our enemies, those who are so unlovable? You don't have to turn there, but I think the words will be on the screen for you. But I'm going to go to uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians in chapter 5, and I want to read, read these words for you. You are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. And then a little bit further down the page, we read this famous passage. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Paul's passage here is heavy on the treatment of others. 
enemies not excluded to the goal of love for the neighbor, including the enemy. It even uses some of the same language as we found in Leviticus 19 and in Matthew 5. And what I want us to see from these passages and the link that brings this all together, resulting in love for our enemies, is the Holy Spirit. Love for others is a fruit that grows in our lives by His doing. He makes it happen, and it won't happen without the Holy Spirit's leading. And here's the best part. When it happens, I don't get the glory for that. God does. So the first answer that the Holy Spirit is a link between Christ's love for us and our love for others. If he is not in that, it won't happen. He works in us in some supernatural way to bear the fruit of love. How does he do this? Here's the second part, by faith. Again, in the same chapter in Galatians, Paul writes this in verses five and six. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You see how these things are working together. So what connects us with the salvation that Jesus has accomplished on the cross is faith. But Paul also connects our love for others with this same faith. Another way to say this might be the faith that was the instrument in our salvation is the same faith that is the instrument in our sanctification, loving our, na- loving our enemies being a part of our sanctification. Our love for others, especially our enemies, has to be founded, produced, and stimulated by the Holy Spirit through the instrument of faith. And this is how we should hope it would be. Because some of us are more naturally loving people. Some of us are more naturally standoffish. Some of us more affectionate and some of us more reserved. So although our dispositions all differ, we don't have to fret over this command to love our enemies. It's easier for some than others. But it isn't up to us to dig down deep and conjure up some hidden feelings of love for those that we naturally hate. Because the true work of this command has been bought by the blood of Jesus and worked out in real life through the power of the Holy Spirit. All of these truths are commingled together and working to produce this supernatural love for those considered as enemies. So if you're asking the question right now, how do I better love my enemy? I don't really have a more practical answer for you. We read commands, commands like turn the other cheek, um, even even things that we kind of live by. Don't speak negatively against those who don't like you. Don't spread gossip. Don't hit back, we tell our kids. Even more positively, sacrifice and give to those who don't like you. Um, pray, even like Jesus did, pray for those who persecute you. Those are all good and great and, and godly things that we should be doing, but none of those things will happen without the Holy Spirit leading your life of faith. How do we become better at loving our enemy? Let the Holy Spirit lead your life. A life of faith will trust that when I do this or that for my enemy, God will be glorified. So for me, there isn't a more beautiful passage in the New Testament that weaves together the idea of God's love for us resulting in a relationship with him that is evidenced by our love for others, enemy included. 
I want to end our time this morning by reading a passage, the, the passage I'm speaking of in the New Testament, uh, from the Apostle John in his first letter. And I want you to pay attention to the way that he, like Paul did, weaves together God's love for us, resulting in, God, in our love for others. And our enemy is thrown in there for sure. So in 1 John 4, 7 through 21, it reads, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. <clears throat> For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Oswald Chambers says of the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount is not an ideal. It is a statement of what will happen in me when Jesus Christ has altered my disposition and put in a disposition like his own. Jesus Christ is the only one who can fulfill the Sermon on the Mount.